The Arizona Cardinals have Super Bowl-sized expectations for this season, but opening night didn't go so well with a home loss to the New England Patriots. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, we'll talk about the current condition of major pro sports in Arizona, including the Diamondbacks, Suns, and Coyotes. Plus, the killing of Arizona Republic reporter Don Bowles 40 years ago has endured, in large part because of the shocking nature of a bomb going off in the middle of the day in downtown Phoenix. But was it actually part of something much larger in Arizona? We'll dig into the deeper background on the history of organized crime in the state with Dave Wagner. His book is called The Politics of Murder, Organized Crime in Barry Goldwater's Arizona. Also, the U.S. has been heavily involved with providing security for many other nations around the world. But is that still a good thing? We'll consider the new documentary, American Umpire. And we'll explore the new season of ASU's performance in the Borderlands. Here and now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning, I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, the Arizona Cardinals have Super Bowl-sized expectations for this season, but opening night didn't go so well. We'll talk about the current condition of major pro sports in the Valley. Plus, the killing of Arizona Republic reporter Don Bowles 40 years ago has endured, in large part because of the shocking nature of a bomb going off in the middle of the day in downtown Phoenix. We'll dig into the deeper background on the history of organized crime in Arizona with Dave Wagner. His book is called The Politics of Murder, Organized Crime in Barry Goldwater's Arizona. And the U.S. has been heavily involved with providing security for many other nations around the world, but is that still a good thing? I'll talk with Professor Elizabeth Cobbs about that and her new documentary, American Umpire. We start today's program with a look at media coverage of the presidential election season. Arizona Republic and AZ Central critic Bill Goodykunst expressed some strong opinions about that coverage in a column earlier this week, and he joins me now to verbalize those perspectives. Bill, this has been a strange election season for many. What do you think of how the media has covered it all? I think generally it's been awful. Um, and I think it has to do with uh, media, television, and particular, not knowing how to cover Trump. Clinton, people, some people like her, some people clearly hate her, but she is, uh, despite the fact she's a woman, she's a fairly traditional candidate. Uh, and, and we know how to handle that. With Trump, he's just making stuff up as he goes along. And at first it seemed like, well, you know, that's outrageous. The system will sort itself out. You know, we don't need to worry about that. Well, it turns out the system did sort itself out, and now we have him, and nobody's calling him on it. Do you think that there is a, a fear among certain media conglomerates because, you know, there's that contradiction, this point of, is he getting ratings? There was the previous relationship he had with NBC related to The Apprentice, and Matt Lauer got criticized for how he interviewed Trump as opposed to how he interviewed Clinton. What are some of the factors you think that are causing this reaction? Oh, I think that's it, exactly. I think he um, he is a ratings generator. There's no question about it. He's right. That's one boast that is true. I mean, he's, he's that's the case. They're afraid they're going to lose access to him, and they might. I mean, he's cut off the Washington Post. He's threatened to cut off the New York Times. Part of it, I, I, just, I don't know. I cannot imagine what Chris Wallace is thinking. No, he doesn't need to parse every little detail of their economic uh, plan or whatever. But if there's an out and out lie, if, if Donald Trump says, I never supported the war in Iraq, when there's so much evidence, visual evidence of, that he did, how do you not call him on it? It's ridiculous. It's the stuff that people learn in journalism school the first time, and nobody's doing it because they're afraid they're going to lose access to it. People are sort of seeking out what they kind of agree with um, and what they deem is news or not. Has that complicated journalism in this election season? But, but they're, they're going from one to the other. They're going, they, uh, they want a biased media, which is the big lie about the whole thing. They want a bias that agrees with their bias. You know, no, but no conservatives complain about the way Fox News covers politics. You know, few liberals complain about the way MSNBC covers politics. It, that's what they want. They, they're they're a, an eager choir waiting to be preached to. You have people who take it to extremes, like Sean Hannity. I mean, he's well, he, he's making these medical diagnoses of, of Hillary Clinton, you know, third hand on TV, and people are buying it. That's the thing. I mean, it's you know, if if he says it, well, it must be true. It's on TV. Well, not necessarily. Uh, but this has always been the case. I mean, that's how Rush Limbaugh has such a big audience. It's how Rachel Maddow has has a, a an audience. I mean, people for whatever reason don't really seek news and information as much anymore. They, they, they seek a validation of their own beliefs and their own, their own claims. That's why when, whenever people ask me, and they often do this time of year, you know, how can I really get news? How can I really find out what's going on? I would tell them, 
if you are a liberal or an independent, watch Fox News. If you are conservative, watch MSNBC, because what you're going to get is not what you already think and what you already know. You're going to get what the other side thinks. Nobody does it, but but I'm still sticking with it. Bill, do you think, we referenced Trump, of course, it's impossible not to. Do you think this campaign, as far as media coverage is concerned, has been upended because of his presence? If we saw a more conventional Republican candidate, Jeb Bush, John Kasich, whoever it may have been, would it would this drama be quite as, as uh, obvious as we're seeing right now? There's no question. I mean, there's just there's no question. I mean, he's, he's changed the whole thing. Uh, and it's interesting because he... He's gotten, he hasn't gotten stories. He's gotten like free publicity. He says something outrageous and everybody covers it. That's the whole, you know, the, the, the two big words that we hear now and that we should are false equivalency. Um, you know, if he says, you know, something outrageous, do you really have to go to the other side and get their comment on it? Do you have to report it at all? I don't know. It gets hits, it gets, uh, it gets viewers, uh, it gets numbers. Uh, you know, but he's very, you know. The, the, another problem with this election is the 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 way the accesses work. Clinton has doesn't like the press. She does very little with the press. Uh, she, you know, so when she, you know, turns out to have pneumonia, it turns out, whoa, what else is she hiding, you know? And I don't necessarily believe she is hiding anything. But how would you know? Uh, she does. She doesn't do a lot of press in her events. She's, uh, you know, she kind of keeps them at a distance. On the other hand, everybody complained that she left her press pool behind for 90 minutes when she got sick the other day. Donald Pre- Trump doesn't even have a press pool. He doesn't let allow one. So, I mean, I, it's a real mess, and I think it's going to take a while, if it ever does, to recover and kind of get back to the way things, you know, it's, it, from my perspective, the way things should be. But maybe I have the wrong perspective. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix, talking with Arizona Republic and AZ Central critic. Also for Gannett, Bill Goodykunz. We're talking about media coverage of the election season. And as you can tell, Bill has some strong opinions about that. And Bill, one person who's had strong opinions, but in some ways was able to couch them in in humor, was the former Daily Show host, John Stewart, who is coming back in some form. We also heard yesterday that Keith Olbermann's coming back with GQ and doing some video things as well. We've got Samantha <laughs> B doing full frontal. What do you make of sort of the return, and in some cases, in, in B's case, the continuing commentary on what's going on? I, I spoke with Olbermann late last night about that, actually. Ah. Um, <laughs> I think Stuart is never going to have the platform that he has at The Daily Show, and that's too bad because he was great at it. Um, but again, there is an element there of preaching to the choir. Uh, I, I think that the people who saw what he was doing and enjoyed it already knew what was happening. They just enjoyed seeing it and validated. Samantha Bee's been great, and she's been the, the, the closest thing to Jon Stewart that we've had. Um, I, I mean, I think that people want their news, and maybe if, you know, if I was writing this, maybe I would put news in quotation marks. They want it in what those of us who are older think of as non-traditional ways. And certainly that's the way to do it. Now, John Stewart used to always complain, uh, I thought sort of half-heartedly, that, you know, he said, people, I hear that all these young people are getting their news from me. He said, but that's not really true. He said, the, the actual news has to happen and be reported for me to react to it. The, there's something to be said for that, except that a lot of the audience was not watching that original broadcast. They're only getting it secondhand. And I honestly, I, I, I don't... I think one of the reasons media is in such big trouble all the way around on every platform, on every format, is because I don't think people really want news anymore. Wow. Okay. Because you, as far as what we thought news was, which is sort of an unbiased presentation of the facts? Yes. And I mean, for better or worse, major newspapers during the election season used to always do this thing. And I remember one of my – a guy I used to share a house with, and I worked at a paper in North Carolina. And he used to say, I'm just going to have to take my medicine and read it. And there'd be one big blowout that told you everything you really needed to know to make an informed vote. You will not find that now anymore. Now, you can piece that together because there's more coverage from ever, never. But, I mean, you know, it's going to be buried among, you know, like three biggest parties at Scottsdale last weekend or, you know, whatever. I mean, and I'm, I'm honest to God, I'm not trying to sound like an old man ranting about the way things used to be. <laughs> I like the way things are. I love online media. Uh, I, and I love the immediacy of it, and I love the, the open playing field. Um, but it's got to be a little more self-policing than I think it, it has been. 
you know, just because it's, it's the same way it, with, it always was with newspapers and television. I, just because it shows up doesn't mean it's true. Yeah, I mean, there still needs to be some responsibility. And in some ways, I think that we have uh, forfeited some of that responsibility. Arizona Republic, AZ Central, and Gannett media critic Bill Goodykunst. We've been talking about media coverage of this election season. And Bill, thanks for the time today. Thank you. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Since the end of World War II, the United States has been heavily involved in nations all over the world, supporting or opposing their policies and leaders, and in many cases providing some level of security. How did the U.S. decide to intervene so often, and has that benefited the U.S. and other nations? Should the country be doing more or less of it going forward? Those are some of the questions addressed in the new documentary, American Umpire, which will air on KAET Channel 8 in Phoenix two weeks from today. The writer and producer of American Umpire, Elizabeth Cobbs, joins me. And Elizabeth, when did American security involvement hit its true stride? And how bipartisan was the feeling about that effort at the time? That is such a fabulous question. And the true turning point is 1947, because up to that time, even though the United States had been involved in some wars, it was always ad hoc. And it was because of our own, our sense that our own security was being threatened. It wasn't a commitment we made to anybody else to, you know, pull their chestnuts out of the fire, as they like to say at that time. But in 1947, there was a really bipartisan, amazingly bipartisan conversation that took place in Congress when President Truman came to the Congress and said, we have to do this. We have to guarantee not only the external security of free countries, but the internal security as well. Um, so which is really amazing because that kind of covers the entire waterfront, Steve. Um, and in that conversation, the, the Senate really and the Congress talked through what it would mean and as one put it, one man said, you know, this is going to mean pouring the blood of our, you know, the next generation into the sands of history for as long as we can foresee. But at the same time, the overwhelming sentiment was that we had to do it. How much of U.S. involvement is about practical strategy and trying to make sure that uh, we know what's going on, that our allies are safe or relatively safe? And how much of it is something uh, moral, trying to be on a higher moral ground? I mean, and I don't think it's just us. I think it's that partly that after World War II, I mean, there was what was called and still is called the UN Declaration of Human Rights. After the Holocaust, you know, all the nations of the world, barring three, the Soviet Union, Saudi Arabia, and South Africa at that time, had signed on in 1948 to the notion that there is, that human rights transcend international or national borders. And that's really set a high moral standard that further complicated the picture because the UN was really simply designed uh, to protect the, the national rights of governments with the idea that every government has a right to exist. But you attack onto that three years later, the notion that, oh, and by the way, all those governments, they have to be moral too. And that's, you know, uh, as a, just speaking as a historian here, that that certainly set the bar much higher and has created a lot of angst. Um, and perhaps necessarily, but nevertheless, there it is. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix talking with Professor Elizabeth Cobbs. She's the writer and producer of the documentary American Umpire, which will be airing in Phoenix coming up on September the 28th on KAET Channel 8. Professor Cobbs, what's the feeling about whether this U.S. involvement has been more of a benefit to the U.S. or to European allies? Is that still sort of a tug of war at this point, whether... Um, it make it still makes a lot of sense for the U.S. to be involved. There's a uh, Condoleezza Rice is, is one of the many people uh, in your film, and she brings up the idea of saying, "Well, it would be nice." Uh, in fact, it's uh, I can't remember exact the exact term she used, but she was critical of Europe not spending more of its own resources on that. But she also said, "Well, that doesn't mean we shouldn't still help them." Yes, and she said it's an outrage that the Europeans don't do more. Um, to, to to quote her, I think that we, we've all gotten a lot out of it. And like anything, where we're, a lot of people get something out of something, you feel that other people should put something into something, and the Europeans have. But there is a, a very significant disproportion between what the United States, for example, contributes to defense and what our allies do, not just NATO, but you know, that's easy to measure because in NATO, of which there are 28 member countries, 
every single one of them has pledged to spend 2% of their gross domestic product. That means if you count everything, we're not talking national budgets here, we're talking about everything that's produced, um, 2%. And the United States spends, spends roughly 4%, and most of our allies spend you know, 1%. Um, some, a few, a handful have met the, five, uh, the 2% mark, but something like uh, 5 out of 28, and we're one of those five. And we have a lot of folks, um, including Canada, one of our you know, best friends in the world, and they spend 1%. So I think that that's, Steve, where it really comes down to is that sense of this doesn't mean we walk away from those alliances, but it does mean that the American people need to think about do they want those alliances really to be equal so that we're all contributing to a tough job. Because when you do a tough job, and especially when you do a tough job that you make mistakes at because people do, it's even a little more galling, I guess one might say, to the spirit to know that you're bleeding out for things that other people also benefit from but are not, you know, not really pulling their weight. And one of the themes of the film is whether the greater world would in fact be more chaotic without intense U.S. involvement. And there there are some expressions of cynicism uh, on one side and, and not quite so cynical on the other side. Based on all the interviews you've done over the years on this topic, do people feel like it would be more chaotic, and so the U.S. really just has to keep as involved as possible, even if there is some sort of pullback slightly at some point? Well, this is the critical question, and I think what we're trying to say is that it's okay to have the conversation, and what the purpose of the film is is to really open up this conversation, not feel like it's a bipartisan, it's a partisan question, not to feel that it's unpatriotic to ask these questions. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's the culmination of patriotism to say, I really care. And let's let's talk together about where we go. Because as you said, I mean, there are some who say, "My goodness!" In fact, George Schultz, who's one of our um, one of the people we interviewed, a wonderful man, who was the Secretary of State to Ronald Reagan, and he says, "If we pull back, the world will fall apart. We'll come apart at the seams." There are other people who are, you know, winners of the Pulitzer Prize and Nobel Prize who say, "No, this the world is just a bigger place than it was than when we started out doing this job in 1947." There are more nations. They are more solid. And to go forward sensibly, responsibly to our next generations, we need to be sharing this role, not trying to do it all. So, um, you know, there's, it's a really valid question. And we really hope that listeners will be thinking about the question when they, when they look at the documentary. And there is that argument, too, that uh, with failed nation states, and, and that's where many terrorists, foreign terrorists, have come out of, do you think that's a valid question to think about whether U.S. involvement has led to unintended consequences? Right. And the law of unintended consequences is that there are always unintended consequences of any <laughs> human action. So I don't think we need to beat ourselves up of, oh, my gosh, we didn't think about the unintended consequences because they're always unintended and they're always unexpected. Um, and, in fact, uh, General Jim Mattis, who's one of the people we interviewed, says, you know, you, you, unexpected things will happen always, always. So you have to plan for them. You know, sometimes, yes, the situation would be worse if we had not intervened. It would sometimes it would be worse because we did intervene. And um, I, mean, I think some of that is simply unpredictable, which is, by the way, raises the question of trying to think in a way, I think more, I don't want to say philosophically, because that sounds like as if it doesn't bear any relationship to policy, but it does. When George Washington said our great rule is to have as little political involvement with other countries while maintaining strong economic ties. He was saying a philosophical principle that then could be translated. As you looked at each thing on the ground, you could say, hmm, how, did that, how does that stack up against the great rule? Or with the Truman Doctrine, Truman shifted American policy. So you know, after 150 years, we shifted to a policy we've had for 70 years where you know, the idea is that we are the primary guarantor of the internal and external you know, survival of, of all these various countries. So that's a larger philosophical principle. And then the question now is, well, what are we doing now? And what should we be doing going forward for the next 70 years? Should we be following the same game plan or the same business plan? Or should we be th rethinking it in a sort of global way? And I think, Steve, one of the good points you make is that civil wars are really different from wars of aggression between countries. And wars of aggression between countries have fallen in every year since the Truman Doctrine. They've almost disappeared, not altogether, because nothing disappears altogether, but almost disappeared. What we have are these failed states. Now, by the way, the United States was a failed state in 1861 mm -hmm. to 1865. And the last thing we wanted was foreign intervention. 
I think that you know certainly our worst civil our worst war was our civil war, and for many countries that's true too. So getting involved in those is always dicey and might not be advisable. Professor Elizabeth Cobbs is the writer and producer of American Umpire. It'll be airing on KAET Channel 8 in Phoenix coming up on Wednesday, September the 28th. And Professor, thanks for the conversation. Thank you so much, Steve. And still to come on here and now, we'll look at the history of organized crime in Arizona and the condition of pro sports in the Valley. Stay with us. This is KJZZ's Here and Now. In Phoenix, I'm Steve Goldstein. The killing of Arizona Republic reporter Don Bowles 40 years ago has endured, in large part because of the shocking nature of a bomb going off in the middle of the day in downtown Phoenix and because a journalist simply doing his job was targeted. But there's a lot of background we're missing if the focus is solely on what happened to Bowles, which can't really be considered an isolated incident. In his book, The Politics of Murder, Organized Crime in Barry Goldwater's Arizona, former Republic City editor Dave Wagner writes about some of that background, and he joins me now. It was in June, it was the 40th anniversary just a few months ago, of the murder of Don Bowles. Middle of the day, the bomb went off in his car. What made you, 40 years after that incident, want to look in more deeply? It it wasn't just about Bowles. It was a lot of other background that led to what happened to Bowles. Yeah, I wanted to to find out, of course, what everybody else who looks at this crime wants to find out who did it and why and why was it never solved those are the two big questions but um the reason i i wanted to do it was because i discovered in asking a few initial questions of people in the who were in the prosecutor circles and legal circles and the juridical class you might say i i got answers that were basically off-putting they didn't want to talk about it really so I decided that I would try to find uh, archival uh, material. So I discovered that um, the organization that came here to uh, finish Don Bull's job after he was killed, that the thousands and thousands of documents in Missouri that were gathered by these reporters had really never been looked at in any systematic way. And mm-hmm. only they had only been consulted you know, in shards or in... Uh, you know, just here and there. So I decided to be systematic about it, see what I could find, do follow-up interviews, compare it with the record, and just try to uh, approach it historically and tell the whole story. Mm -hmm. And what I found was there was enough material, which with some additional work, a lot of additional work, uh, was able to uh, tell the whole story of what happened. Did you approach this as a journalist who was ticked off that that had happened with Don Bowles, or were you approaching it as someone who was sort of trying to connect these dots together that made all of this stuff? Come? I mean, the subtitle of the book has Barry Goldwater's name in it, which yeah. Barry Goldwater was and still remains a pretty important figure in the state. When I got here in 1987, it was 11 years after Bowles' death, and uh, I wasn't in a position to be personally offended by it, but I was professionally upset <laughs> uh, because I can tell you that that it cast a pall over the art of journalism in this state. That was pretty clear. And uh, most of all, it was the biggest untold story. And I wanted to see if I could find out why it was re- why it had remained untold. Mm-hmm. Why I was very puzzled at the fact that Barry Goldwater had resisted any attempts to tell the story. Um, that was the first clue that something important was going on. And took me a while to get to find out enough so that I could go back to these same prosecutors and other people and say, okay, um, no, you can't, don't give me that version because I know it's not true. Then we moved on from there, and I found some prosecutors who were very willing to help. My thought in reading the book was, wow, I can't believe Phoenix had this going on, that you had people considered to be reputable members of the community who were overlapping with organized crime members. Was that unique to Phoenix? And if not, what aspect of it was unique to Phoenix? No, it was not unique to Phoenix. The, uh, whether in the East or the West, organized crime was part of that, specifically part of that generation. I mean, it's in every generation. It's in every community. It's in every city. Uh, what set Phoenix apart was that um, the story was never told. And the only reason why it could be told was because uh, somebody, some idiot, <laughs> was stupid enough to kill a reporter. And 40 reporters came in from around the country and wanted to find out. They, uh, they didn't want to find out who killed Bulls. They said that that was not their job. That was a police uh, mm-hmm. job. But they, 
they wanted to find out why he had been killed. And I think they did find out from the records, but they only had seven months to collect all the material and synthesize it, and that was not enough time to actually turn it into a, uh, into a, a finished investigation. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix talking with Dave Wagner. His book is called The Politics of Murder, Organized Crime in Barry Goldwater's Arizona. And Dave, how informed or uninformed was the public about all of this? Because one of the things you write about is Edward Lazar's murder, which was later turned into sort of a mixed biography novel by his son that generated some headlines. But I mean, was it seen as just, oh, wow, that was organized crime. That's, that's wild. It's, it's fictional in the average person's life. Or did the public start to realize this was going on? The person who told him the most was Don Bowles. Mm -hmm. He started off with a very long and very interesting series on uh, Ned Warren, who was probably the biggest organized crime figure in Arizona. He built people from around the country. And here, out of uh, uh, around a billion dollars, somebody close to him once estimated. And um, he was protected by the Phoenix Network. Uh, by the political network, and uh, he w- uh, there's a chapter in there that shows systematically how he was protected at every turn, mm-hmm. and by corrupting the uh, county attorney who then um, uh, who was being blackmailed. I'm really still trying to connect the dots here and say why is it that all these prominent figures would say, uh, did they want to be chummy with the guy? What, what what went on there? Why was he able to hold power for so long? Well, the specific reason why uh, Ned Warren. Uh, accumulated so much power was that uh, it's an interesting story. He started off trying to become a bigwig in Democratic Party politics, mm-hmm. and he wasted three or four years at that because this was exactly the moment when the Democratic Party was entering oblivion. Uh, and then he d- he realized that he was going to have to become a Republican, and so <laughs> he did. And he uh, he was wise enough to get into a position where he was able to help out uh, one of the chief Republicans, the guy who was more, uh, had more influence over the police and the judges than anybody else in town, and put him in his debt. Mm-hmm. And that's how, why it took uh, so long for Warren to be put away. And it was not the local people who put him away. In every one of these instances, it was the feds had to come in and do it. And the people who, who uh, put away Ned Warren was the, um, ultimately, was the FBI and the um, uh, Los Angeles Organized Crime Strike Force. Uh, they did a very good job. Unfortunately, when they, after they put him away, they let his gang of sociopaths and killers, one of whom was the guy who killed Don Bowles, run uh, wild in the streets. And um, they didn't bother to go after his gang. Uh, and so uh, all of a sudden there was this gang of, killers and arsonists and thugs running around and uh, who were under the influence of the Chicago Heights Mafia. Suddenly, they were up for grabs and some very powerful people said, okay, finally, we have a real uh, mob in this town that we can hire. And uh, Adamson was the guy who was up for hire. He did a terrible job. And so there was a lawyer by the name of Neil Roberts who came in to take over. And he became the middleman. And Mr. Roberts was... Um, pretty far up the food chain. In fact, he, he did some covert assignments for Barry Goldwater from time to time. Yeah, you write about that connection that there was this link with Goldwater and to Adamson as well, which I think would, would stun a lot of people. Just because it's Goldwater, I ask it this way. Yeah. When you write a book like this, mm-hmm. you have to be pretty sure that you've got the facts on the table that you know what you're doing. Do you feel like because of Goldwater's role, was he able to do things that others wouldn't do? Was he also... Because a lot of people, Republicans and Democrats, liked Barry Goldwater, wanted him to be successful because of the things he brought to the state. Yeah. Were they also less tentative to either believe that he did these things, or at least if he did, they weren't going to touch it? Barry Goldwater was a complicated guy. He came out of that generation. He was no different from the rest of them in the World War II generation in that they were tough guys and they knew what they were doing. They didn't, you know, if uh, uh, he was part of the buildup of... Uh, economic growth of the Southwest, which was a multi-billion dollar operation. And it was, he was the guy in the Senate who was uh, the guy who smoothed the path for uh, energy corporations and banks and other people to make that possible. That was no small deal. And when you have obstacles come up, sometimes, you, you know, uh, you know, you have to, you have to get rid of them in a way that's less than gentle. 
I don't think Barry Goldwater was himself corrupt, but I think he accepted the, uh, he was surrounded by a network that was, definitely was corrupt, and he was aware of that and um, was generally silent about it. And you can read more about that story in Dave Wagner's book, The Politics of Murder, Organized Crime in Barry Goldwater's Arizona, and he'll be at Changing Hands Bookstore coming up in October as well. Dave, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Steve. This is KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The 2016 NFL season got off to a bumpy start for the Arizona Cardinals. The team has Super Bowl expectations but lost an opening night at home to the New England Patriots. Even with that loss, the Cardinals are still easily in the best position of any of the Valley's four major professional sports organizations. The Suns and Coyotes are in rebuilding mode, with the Coyotes seeming closer to success, and the Diamondbacks have been underwhelming after coming out of spring training with playoff aspirations. So what is the overall condition of pro sports in the Valley? With me to talk about that are Phoenix Business Journal senior reporter Mike Sonnix. Mike, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. And Greg Esposito, contributor to Sports360AZ.com, also former digital manager for the Phoenix Suns. Greg, good morning to you. Thank you for having me. Well, so, Greg, is this a Cardinals town now? Oh, yeah. And if you had told me that 20 years ago, I probably would have laughed out loud. But uh, now it is 100% a Cardinals town, and the other three teams are are a distant second. Uh, You never would have imagined, you know, growing up in this town as I did that the Phoenix Suns would ever fall from that from that perch and that the Arizona Cardinals who at the time were you know a to not mince words a laughing stock playing out at Sun Devil Stadium that they would have such a turnaround is is unbelievable but it's been uh, it's been a heck of a run for the Cardinals well Greg a lot of the credit's been given to Michael Bidwill taking a lot of charge there but how much of it had to do with the stadium the fact that they sell this stadium out people wanted to come and see them play and then they started to win along with the new stadium Oh, it has everything to do with the new stadium because without University of Phoenix Stadium, there wouldn't be an Arizona Cardinals. There was threats that they were going to move to L.A. if they didn't get the stadium vote. I mean, without without a state-of-the-art facility, the Cardinals never could have competed in today's NFL with the, with the contracts and be able to upgrade their training facility in Tempe to include an, an indoor practice bubble and to completely redo it. Without the new, uh, without the new uh, stadium, none of that is possible. Mike? Yeah, I think we're pretty much an NFL town, too. The NFL is just so dominant. TV ratings, uh, popularity, fantasy football, uh, gambling, uh, over the other sports right now. And we have so many transplants here that, you know, yeah, yeah, the Cardinals are the the dominant local team, but you have so many Broncos and Seahawks and Steelers and Cowboys and Packers fans that, you know, those people are the ones going to the sports bars. People are just consuming football so much more than the other sports now, Uh, you know, office uh, uh, water cooler talk is mostly about football. People don't talk about baseball. So I think, you know, some, some of the other sports have kind of declined, some of it at their own doing, uh, nationally and locally. And, and the Cardinals have had really great timing, like Greg said, with the stadium and the success. I mean, they, they've done well since Kurt Warner and now with Palmer, and they've had Larry Fitzgerald, you know, some players that, that fans can identify with. And the thing that's interesting is we got younger fans out there who – Pretty soon we'll only remember the Cardinals playing in Glendale, playing in a really nice stadium, being in the playoffs, not being in the NFC East and losing to the Redskins and Giants and and Cowboys every year. And that's changing the whole image of the team. And, and yeah, uh, Michael Bidwell, I think, has, has kind of changed uh, the culture there. And they, they are one of the considered, you know, one of the, the, the top teams. Well, then, Mike, which comes first, chicken or the egg, then, on this? Because... Cardinals got better. As Greg pointed out, they may have moved if they hadn't gotten this new stadium, but the new stadium has not worked out at all for the Coyotes in in a place that is considered to be far away from the heart of the Valley. Is that because the NHL is just not as popular? There's a couple things there. You know, the Cardinals just play, obviously, on Sundays and, you know, a couple other days of the week now. Uh, So people are willing to drive out for for that event versus, you know, the the Coyotes and playing, you know, 40-some home games and People trying to weigh whether to drive out there on a Tuesday night when they're playing, you know, Nashville or or, or Tampa. 
uh, you know, people make that cost-benefit analysis. Uh, football fits into people's schedules now. It fits with television better than the other sports. Fantasy football uh, fits in with, with technology, and people can follow the games. You know, the other sports, if you look at the Diamondbacks or the Coyotes or the Suns, a lot of people don't even know what days they're playing, you know, what times the games are starting. Uh, football is, is kind of ingrained. Um, I think college football and its popularity has really helped pro football because people are following guys that went to ASU. If you're an Ohio State or Alabama fan, you, you kind of follow them in the pros. Now, you don't have that in the NBA now with guys coming out early. People don't follow baseball, you know, as much as they used to. So so I do think, you know, it, it, it kind of it's part and parcel of everything. The NFL's popularity, you know, skyrocketed at the same time when the Cardinals uh, got the new stadium and have been, you know, much more successful than their than their historical past. Yeah, Greg, jump in on this. How much is it about the sport? How much is it about an individual team's management, for example? Well, I, I think all of it factors in. But for me, the big the big problem with the Coyotes arena winding up in Glendale is the fact that most of the fan base was an East Valley-centric fan base that when they were drawing at America West Arena back in the day. And that trip on, on a weeknight when you work in the East Valley is next to impossible. I actually work and live in the East Valley, and, and driving from there to Glendale to get to a 7 o'clock game is almost impossible with the way you have to do it. So I just think it was poor poor planning initially. I don't really think it's a lack of love necessarily for the NHL here because we have enough transplants from the East Coast and, and enough people that are here from Canada in the winter. I just think it's a location-based issue for this team. It'll be interesting to see if or when they come up with a new arena plan like they've talked about that's potentially in the East Valley, how much of an impact that legitimately has. Because right now, if you look at the Coyotes' raw Foster. They probably have the best young talent group out of out of the four teams in town that that has a chance to really grow in the next uh, you know five years. The Suns are close, but I think the Coyotes probably have the, the the most talent for to potentially be stars there. And as that group grows, if they move back to the East Valley, it'll be interesting to see if that if the popularity of the team grows with it, which I suspect it will. It's interesting to see uh, how the teams and, and each sport who they're marketing to, and it kind of shows. Uh, their, their relative strength and, and, and weakness. You know, the, the NFL is going big after women uh, uh, and Hispanics, but, but especially women. You see a lot of ads for, for apparel and are trying to get, you know, women out to the games. That shows you how much penetration they have with men and other sports fans. The NFL cuts across all, all geography. Uh, it's, it's not a regional sport in any way, which you can kind of maybe argue, you know, hockey is at some level. Um, if you look at the NBA, and, and the Suns are certainly in one of the, the weaker franchises right now, despite their historical success. They're going. They go after younger younger folks. People that live in cities. They have a pretty good international audience. Um, the other two sports, baseball and hockey, are really challenged. You know, who is hockey trying to market to? The, the, our local team is just trying to get enough people out to the stadium. And baseball, it just feels like the the, the world has passed it by in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, I think. Go, go ahead, Greg. But I, I want to follow up quickly though with this. Um, when Mike says marketing too, I'm also thinking who are the who are the teams marketing in the sense that the Cardinals seem to be loaded now, especially as a winning organization. With the Suns, it was so easy over the years. If you think about Barkley and then of course the Steve Nash, Amari Stoudemire, Sean Marion teams, so exciting. And now they're it's almost like they're trying to force feed us Devin Booker at this point, who certainly looks like an up and coming player, but has only played one season. Well, I think if you look at the at who are they marketing to in terms of the Coyotes, they're going strong after the youth demographic. They tried to play up on the youth demographic in, in a lot of their marketing campaigns over the last few years because there is such a strong youth hockey market here. And I think their thought process is if you can hook them young, then you can turn them into lifelong fans, which I think is, is a smart way for them to go because you're not going to convert a, you know, a middle-aged guy who never really followed hockey much or had that much interest. It's going to be a tough to convert, but if you can get younger kids that are playing in youth hockey leagues or, or get them interested in youth hockey, that's a huge win for them. From the Suns' perspective, you'll notice a lot of the ad campaign was trying to reconnect with the past because that's where the success is and trying to remind people that at one point this was a Suns town, that there were 300,000 people that stood outside in downtown Phoenix in the middle of June to honor the 93 Phoenix Suns team that finished second. They didn't even win the, everything. I think you see a lot of marketing towards that. And in terms of 
who you're marketing. I mean, the Cardinals have the clear advantage because Larry Fitzgerald is a huge uh, presence here and nationally. Carson Palmer was an MVP candidate last year. Tyron Matthew is a huge national story. So they have faces of the franchise. I think you're right. The Suns defaulted to Devin Booker because in what was supposed to, uh, what everybody hoped was going to be a turnaround season last year, the wheels kind of fell off. Devin Booker became a bright spot and he's so charismatic that it almost feels like a natural thing, even though he's 19. Now, I don't know that he's going to become the superstar that everybody thinks that that he might and that they want right now. I'm not sure about that. Does he have the makeup? Yeah, but they're putting a lot of eggs in that basket, and, and I'm not sure that, that it will turn out because it's the only only guy they could get behind right now. I want to come back to this idea of marketing, but also at the management level. Mike, let me start with you on this. You've just got a couple minutes left. Even with all the problems the Diamondbacks have had, and are they going to let uh, Tony La Russa go? Are they going to let their general manager, Dave Stewart, go? The manager, Chip Hale. They gave Derek Hall an eight-year extension, which we always balk when players are given eight-year extensions because they might get injured. It might. What about an eight-year extension? What does that say about what the Diamondbacks' plan for the future is, considering the dispute going on with Maricopa County, the stadium? Well, I think the ownership there, Ken Kendrick, the managing partner, you know, has essentially ultimate confidence in Derek Hall, you know, running the, 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 the business side of things, the operations side of things, the non-baseball side of things. Uh, you know, he's pretty well regarded in the community. Um, you know, not all sports owners and sports executives maybe have that reputation, not only here and other places, but he's kind of your perpetual nice guy. Um, and the team's problems on the field, and this has been a, they're, they're one of the flops. They said the big, granky uh, contract and there are some expectations of of being competitive and 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 they're pretty bad. They might not hit two million fans um, this year. I think that's probably the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we could see a big upheaval, you know, in the in the baseball operations. But but Derek seems to to hang on. Um, you know, I think a lot of fans are are curious about. What's going to happen with Chase Field with this potential sale to a private seller? Does the team stay here? You know, can they downsize it? That's been the big knock on it in terms of the stadium's just way too big for for the demand in baseball here. And Greg, really briefly, what do you what do you make of that with someone like Derek Hall getting an eight year contract? And yes, as Mike said, he's highly regarded on the business side, but as far as the actual baseball side, they have not played well. Does it look weird to be, hey, we're doing great on the business side, and even though because people will focus on what's going on on the field rather than off, we'd think. I don't think I, I think fans and people in general can, can kind of separate that because the Dimebacks have been quite successful in their off the field ventures, their marketing. You'll you'll notice uh, their food items that are so creative get national attention. The kind of things that, that Derek Hall is really overseeing seem to to pay off for them. Now on the baseball side, uh, Tony Larusa, Dave Stewart, uh, Chip Hale, the manager, they're all going into what's going to be a difficult offseason to to see if they come back. They're where the buck stops in terms of the on-field performance. And for me, I kind of feel like Tony La Russa has turned into the the Diamondbacks' Wayne Gretzky. Remember when Wayne Gretzky <laughs> came in for the Coyotes and, and was praised as this guy with pedigree, and he's going to be a guy that can turn around things uh, on the ice. And, and Tony La Russa came with the same kind of fanfare, and I just wonder if you put a guy – uh, that really has never had any front office experience into that position, and then you expect him to be part of this revolutionary front office that you just set him up for failure. Yeah. I don't see how he can succeed in that position, and he's proven that he hires his friend Dave Stewart to come in and be a general manager who had been an agent, had really been mm-hmm. uh, out of actual baseball for, for a while to come in and be a general manager, and, and it has been an abjunct failure so far. Greg Esposito, contributor to Sports360AZ.com. He's also a former digital manager for the Phoenix Suns, also a Phoenix Business Journal senior reporter Mike Sonix. Guys, thanks. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And still to come on here and now, we'll talk about ASU's Performance in the Borderlands initiative. Stay with us. You are listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. More than a dozen years ago, ASU launched its Performance in the Borderlands initiative. The artists who come here are part of the initiative's mission to understand and promote cultural performance in the borderlands. This season will include theater as a tool of social engagement and a piece called Nogales, which will look into a 2012 death along the border. With me to talk more about performance in the borderlands are its producing director, Mary Stevens, and Tiffany Lopez, director of ASU School of Film, Dance, and Theater. Welcome to you both. 
Thank you so much for having us. And yes, good, mor- good morning. And Mary, let's start uh, with performance in the Borderlands, how the series is presented. I'm really curious about interactivity mm-hmm. because art seems to be one of those things that, yes, you can observe something, but if you really feel like you're engaging with the artist, there's even more there. Yeah, what we've found, I agree with you, um, and I think that's one of the core values of performance in the Borderlands is working with community members to produce the work itself. So it isn't just about bringing people and visiting and creating passive audiences. It's about really thinking about how we cross those borders Mm -hmm. between audience and performer and how our audiences are also knowledge bearers. Um, And so I think that's an exciting proposition for this year. In what ways has it evolved? Well, 10 years ago, um, we were just talking about this. You know, it's a, it was a visionary um, creation from, from its founder, Ramon Rivera Severa, um, 10 years ago. And, and this, I think when we look at it now, 10 years later, it's become very much a community-based movement. Um, I think it originated in a small way at ASU, but it was very impactful on the campus. And what we've been able to do is move it from the campus into communities, building from the community up. And Tiffany, how does this fit into the broader vision you have? now having been at ASU for a couple of months. So coming to ASU from 21 years in the University of California, I think one of the things that uh, strongly attracted me to come here to Arizona State University is precisely the community partnerships the university has along with its commitment to access Mm -hmm. and really training our students to be global thought leaders and to have pipelines into immediately knowing what kind of jobs they want to enter. And half the jobs they'll enter haven't even been created yet. So I think the conversation about knowing your community, being able to be exposed to the arts as a, 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 an engine for thinking with agility, being able mm-hmm. to uh, innovate, uh, but also think about how your work emanates from the community you live in. Those are all reasons why performance in the Borderlands is a very important cornerstone part of the School of Film, Dance, and Theater. Let me ask you a similar question to what I asked Mary, which is the importance of that interactivity, the idea that it's not a passive effort here. Uh, Well, last night we had an incredible panel at the Phoenix Center for the Arts um, with uh, one of our uh, resident artists, Marta Gonzalez of Quetzal, who's uh, visiting uh, through a residency sponsored by ASU Gamage in conjunction with Performance in the Borderlands. And it was a really exciting uh, panel because the theater was full and it had a wide variety of people coming in from the Phoenix community who are already engaged in the arts, but people also very much curious about what the arts, uh, what's happening in the arts. And I think the energy in that room, that's exactly the kind of energy we want to create around these partnerships, the conversations, the questions people asked about really how do we pursue our work with a sense of accountability Mm. and responsibility Mm. to carving a path for what we would describe as bettering the community, the public good. It it was an incredible evening Mm. conversation. So I don't want to say this is then a redefinition, Mary, of what the arts can be, but is that also part of that evolution, this idea that it's, it's, not, it's not sort of a, a, it's not a background part of our lives. It should mm-hmm. be a, a centerpiece as far as how we determine our direction in some ways. Yeah, I, I think it's, maybe it's not a redefinition because if we look at the diverse communities, not only in Arizona, but nationwide and across the world, art has been a part of, of communities and especially communities in struggle. Um, so I definitely want to uplift those folks that are, have been doing this work um, for many, many years. I think what it's doing is it's reconnecting us. Maybe that's the way that I would understand it, to the potential of art to impact our lives. So rather than sort of seeing it on a wall or, or watching it, we think, wow, there's something creative happening, and I can be a part of that, and I am a part of that. Um, so for me, I think of it as, as honoring the people already doing the work and reconnecting with what art can be. And I think the School of Film, Dance, and Theater is very much immersed as a school, I think, in that le- level of questioning, not just performance in the borderlands. And Tiffany, what about... I'm going to use controversy advisedly, but Mm. how important is it that art is controversial or thought-provoking? I think uh, art, by definition, it will... it will push people to think in new ways. And I don't think art is doing its job if it's not provoking us in some way. I think when we talk, think about being provoked and think about controversy, we often think about it in negative ways. But if we are not training uh, our leaders of tomorrow and our future mm-hmm. students um, to, from the beginning, 
understand how to have a sense of voice. And we know a lot of our students right now uh, in our communities, especially our communities of struggle and mm. communities left on the margins through lack of funding for early education, um, the arts are a really important way to give them a sense of voice. But I think the arts are a really important engine for inquiry. Mm. And inquiry will always entail questions, and questions will always lead to us uh, thinking through things in very complicated ways that can cause discomfort. But I think I think what we want for our future leaders and students is a comfort with being uncomfortable, mm. a comfort with discomfort, because we ne- we have to be able to navigate through that to arrive at true innovation and advancement. Mm. And Mary, what do you think about that? Yeah. Um, I would agree with Tiffany, and I, I think that that is very much the role of art. I, I often think of art is the gift of art and the unique gift of art for me personally is is thinking about the scripts that we have every day then twisted and reopened and reimagined. And for me, that is the distinct role of art is it allows us to see the everyday in a new way. And I think when we're thinking about controversy or we're thinking about political topics, mm-hmm. oftentimes we get mired in the same rhetoric and the same devices and the same script. And artists allow us to see that and expose it, or, you know, good art, I think, um, allows us to see things in a new way and perhaps see a different potential. Um, and I think that's what's exciting about the artists that we have coming this season, because they're all concerned with reimagining. Um, and again, this is, I, I think this is very much a, un- a hide a wide, you know, the School of Film Dance Theater, we have so many great faculty and students doing this work. Um, and I think we're well situated in a conversation school-wide that's thinking about how art serves the communities that we work with every day. And ASU is particularly invested in thinking about how we partner Mm -hmm. artists and creative thinkers with those who are uh, engineers and uh, working through other problems. And I think uh, scholars and artists, they're approaching uh, some of our most pressing problems just through a different lens. And when we get the chance through our community partnerships and performance in the borderlands is one of our uh, strongest vehicles for our community partnerships through the arts. When we put those people in a room together, that's that diversity of voices really looking at the local and thinking about it in terms of uh, the transglobal, the transnational. Those become very powerful engines for us to address problems. And Phoenix is a, a, one of the six largest cities. It's a border uh, adjacent city. And we really can be uh, global thought leaders because we're dealing with issues that uh, other cities and other geographic locations are dealing with around sustainability, about the environment, about geography. Uh, I think that that's where uh, the arts become very important. Mary, just a few seconds on that. Follow with you. Um, And I think piggybacking off of what Tiffany is saying is I'm thinking about our season and issues of sustainability are at the core of this. Issues of race and class, issues of belonging and disbelonging are at at the core of this season. And I'm very excited that, that we get to launch it. Mary Stevens is producing director of ASU's Performance in the Borderlands Initiative. Tiffany Lopez is the relatively new director of ASU School of Film, Dance, and Theater. Thanks to you both for being here. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you very much for listening. Thanks also to Jimmy Jenkins and Tiara Vian for their help on today's program. If you missed any part of it, want to hear one of our past programs, go online later this afternoon to kjzz.org. You can also download the KJZZ app to your smartphone. This is member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great rest of the day. It's 12 o'clock.